This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So bankruptcy, five ways declaring bankruptcy does and doesn't affect you. And I think this is a really important segment because we're addressing the myths yep. and the just the uh, the beliefs that are out there in the universe that people think about bankruptcy. The fears, the uncertainty, all of that, right? It's so misunderstood. I mean, yep. that's what I've learned in just doing this show with you yep. is, yeah, like I misunderstood a ton of it. And, and then I also looked at my own personal biases around it. And there's a lot. So- It's a misunderstood process. As a result, lots of folks want to avoid filing bankruptcy or even considering other legal debt help options. But Blair, licensed insolvency trustee, helps folks with debt every day. And it's so great you've put put together this list of some really common areas of concern that you get asked about on a regular basis. Yeah. So, you know, most people that come through our door, they've done a little bit of research online, maybe a lot, but there's so much conflicting information that's out there. And, you know, sometimes it's written by people that have a certain agenda, you know, like a creditor that wants to get paid back and never wants to see anybody file for bankruptcy. Um, so it's good to kind of cut through the facts and, and the myths and, and tell you what what's exactly true here. So I think we grouped it into a couple ways. We talked first how bankruptcy does affect you. Uh, and, you know, let's start off at, at the first thing, you know, uh, well, bankruptcy gives you the breathing room that you need. Um, Bankruptcy requires your creditors to stop contacting you. And to a person, people that come into my door, um, they are scared of collection calls and for good reason. Um, You know, creditors can call you seven days a week, you know, from 7 a.m. till about 9 p.m. most of those days. Um, You know, they shouldn't threaten. They shouldn't say the things that are untrue. Um, You know, all those things are prohibited. But what my clients tell me is quite often they threaten, they say things that are untrue, and they engage in psychological warfare, essentially, to, you know, to try to make it so painful for you to get these calls, you're going to do whatever you can, whatever it takes to make a payment on those debts. Absolutely. I mean, I can speak from just experience of getting threatening phone calls from organizations that don't exist, that are completely fake. And I have to take a second and think, oh, right, this is a fake call and hang up. Mm -hmm. And but but that's not where your brain goes yeah. right off the bat, right? You get scared. It's the opposite of what we're conditioned to do. And, and collection Sorry. agents know this. So they'll yeah. speak in a very authoritative, declarative tone saying, you know, this is the way it is. And, you know, if you hang up this phone, I'll be at your door tomorrow type of thing, which, you know, could never happen that way. Exactly. Uh, so if you file for bankruptcy right away, that has to stop. So as soon as you sign the documents, um, the trustee contacts your creditors and says, well, as of now, we... The trustee steps in the middle like a referee. So there's no more direct contact between creditors and the individual. The individual gets the breathing room that they need to to restructure. But it's even bigger than that in terms of stopping contact um, because, you know, what sends people running through the doors to us is if your assets or your wages are being seized. So, you know, typically the government will do this more quickly, but any creditor could if they take you to court. Um, They can go to your employer. They can take up to 30% of your wages before you see a dime, uh, which you can imagine if you're struggling to live 
of how tough that could be. Absolutely. Um, and they could potentially register on title to your house if you have one or try to seize vehicles or different assets. So if you file for bankruptcy, not only do creditors have to stop contacting you, but they have to stop any asset seizures or wage seizures that are in place. And that includes the government. There's nobody that has an authority that trumps what the Bankruptcy Act requires. Cool. Uh, credit rating impact. And I think this is really important to go over uh, mm -hmm. because I know, again, the myth is you're doomed. Oh, yeah. The myth is it's a life sentence. <laughs> yeah. And again, depending on who you're getting advice from, some people will say you'll never be able to buy a house if, if you file for bankruptcy. Oh, or a car or yeah. uh, anything, right? Yeah. And the reality is so far from that, it, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, first off, if you file for bankruptcy or you do a consumer proposal, anytime you compromise your debts, anytime you don't pay back exactly what's owed to the penny plus interest, your credit rating takes a hit. Okay. Um, if it's the first time you've ever been through a bankruptcy, when you finish the bankruptcy, and usually that's after nine months, um, when you finish the bankruptcy for six years after, if someone pulls a credit bureau, they're going to see that a bankruptcy has been filed. If it's a consumer proposal, typically it's two to three years after completion. If someone pulls a credit bureau, they're going to see a consumer proposal has been filed. Now, first off, six or seven or two or three years is a lot less than the rest of your life. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't go on forever. One, and that's really important. Mm -hmm. But two. But two is even that is a long time. And if you do the right things, um, you can rebuild your credit as soon as two to three years after even a bankruptcy, let alone a proposal. And, you know, the right things, we talk about them in depth at the counseling sessions. We tell you about secured credit cards, about RRSP loans, about all the important things you need to do to rebuild your credit. And if you follow those steps, no reason why you can't qualify for a mortgage in as little as two to three years after bankruptcy. So when I sit down with my clients and we sketch out, you know, what are you doing now and where's your money going? And gee, saving that down payment seems just impossible, doesn't it? Because all the money's going to interest. If you look after a bankruptcy when they owe nobody anything, suddenly there's some disposable income that can work towards saving a down payment. And for this market in the lower mainland, two to three years of savings is a minimum to, to get any sort of a down payment. Exactly. So usually it's not the credit rating that's going to hold you back from getting a property. It's right. just going to be the time required to save a down payment. But you're way better off even after bankruptcy doing that because before bankruptcy, any money you save, your creditors are going to have the right to come and get from you. Yeah. And the credit rating part, after you've declared uh, or you've done a consumer proposal, you're, you're establishing a credit rating in a sense because you are being responsible, you're paying, you're paying whatever it is that's been deemed that you need to pay, and that shows up. Yep. I love that. Oh, yeah. You finished the proposal. You've shown. You've honored an obligation. You know, usually it's two to four years or so. You've successfully come through it. It's focused on saving the down payment, and your credit will rebuild quicker than you think. Very good. Very good. Uh, debts are written off. Yeah. Sometimes people forget about this um, yeah. because if all you think about is that the negative in a bankruptcy, well, why yeah. would anyone ever do it? Well, the answer is no matter what you owe, and it can be as little as $1,000, nobody goes bankrupt on $1,000. It can be literally millions of dollars. Whatever it is, at the end of the day, when you're finished the bankruptcy, the debts are gone. You're back to zero. You're back to having a sense of possibility and hope and being able to save rather than knowing that every dollar that comes into your pocket is already spoken for six times over. Now, there can be exceptions to this, and they're very common sense exceptions. You know, if you had a court-imposed fine or, um, you know, if you had alimony or child support, obviously you can't go into bankruptcy and, and remove the obligation to support your family. No. You wouldn't want to. No. But just about every other debt that's not arising from fraud or crime or support 
when you finish bankruptcy, that's gone. You start again fresh. And the again, the idea of someone who's been carrying around, maybe it's sixty or $80,000 of debt for years, when I ask them to imagine their life without this debt around their neck, you know, they start to smile. They start, their eyes start to, to broaden. They start to think of all the things they could do if this debt wasn't attached to them. And that's what you can do after a bankruptcy. Which includes having a better night's sleep, right? It's yeah. done. And I think that's a, I think that's an, that's a, a sense of peace. Oh my gosh, that's worth its weight in gold. Right? Oh yeah. The, the amount of, of reviews that we get of really nice cards of people saying, you know, after I met with you guys, even sometimes it's just the first meeting of just knowing that there is hope. There's someone that cares enough to explain everything to them and take them through the process. Yeah. People say I had the best night's sleep in years. Yeah. Excellent. So how uh, how bankruptcy does not affect you? Yeah, and this this is helpful because sometimes people think, you know, bankruptcy is just this all-encompassing thing that really turns your life upside down. And, you know, in reality, it's we get in between you and the people that you owe money to, and we basically work out a process that you can get out of that debt over time. Um, how it does not impact you, first off, is getting a job. So, you know, some people think if you've been into bankruptcy, no one's going to hire you or things like that. It's not necessarily true. No, de- definitely. And it doesn't prevent you from getting just about any job that's out there. You know, obviously, if you're administering trust funds as a lawyer, you might have a bit of a problem there. But, <laughs> right. but you know, literally, that's about the only ex- ex- um, implication that I've seen here. Um, you can't be fired because you declare bankruptcy. You can't be disciplined because you do a consumer proposal or different things like that. The law does protect you that, you know, you really can't have these unintended consequences from an employment point of view. Excellent. Uh, making your spouse pay. Yeah, sometimes people are quite worried. Well, you know, if I go into bankruptcy and I owe these credit cards, aren't they just going to come and pursue my husband or wife for the amounts owing? And there could be a risk of that, you know, if you've got joint accounts. If both of you are on the credit cards, if you've each got cards, both of your names are on the invoices, and that usually makes sense for the couple to come in and meet with the trustee at the same time, and we'll figure all that out. Um, But just because you're married doesn't mean you owe the other spouse's debt. So one person going into bankruptcy or doing a consumer proposal can literally have zero impact on the other person's debts and on the other person's credit rating. And that's pre-marriage too, to, uh, something to think about too, if you're in that situation, yep. right? Leaving the country. <laughs> that's funny. Oh yeah. Because, you know, uh, uh, well, I don't know. I think these days, uh, my personal experience is I'm always concerned about, well, what's somebody going to, they're going to look at, they're going to enter my name and mm-hmm. into a data bank and oh gosh, what's going to come up? like nothing, but mm-hmm. you know, that's a concern for people. Yeah. We, we all often think, you know, there is some central database that maybe Canada Revenue Agency and the banks and everybody else feeds all of their information into, and that that spits out some picture of an individual that they know everything about us at every moment. And that if we file for bankruptcy or a proposal, suddenly, you know, when we try to leave the country, there's going to be a, a big alert. We're going to be seized at the border and so on and so forth. So um, not a small number of my clients come in the door really concerned about that. You know, is my passport going to be impacted? Is my citizenship going to be impacted? Well, the answer is no. Um, so zero impact on your passport. You're still a Canadian citizen, regardless of, of what happens with your debts. Um, zero Im- impact on you being able to travel. Um, I'm not aware of any database that's cross-referenced at the border that says that whether you owe money or not. Um, the only implication that I'm aware of is if you have child support debts that are s- significant, and this is outside of a bankruptcy completely, then family maintenance can put some restrictions on your passport, but that's about it. And that's nothing to do with a bankruptcy. Right. And, and, not, and, and probably the percentage of people who'd be affected by that is pretty small. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, one other potential impact, and this is pretty minor too, but I do get asked these questions quite a bit, um, is if you're trying to sponsor um, someone to come to Canada. Um, you know, I had someone in my office last night um, who came from Pakistan, you know, 20 years ago, and he's trying to bring the rest of his family over. Um, he's been driving a cab for many years. He's been very successful financially for the most part, but he's had to send a lot of his money back to support his family. And now, you know, he thinks that they're ready to come over. Um, the challenge is if he files for bankruptcy, he can't sponsor them. So you can't sponsor someone to immigrate to Canada because you're putting up potentially some financial guarantees at that point. And while you're in bankruptcy, you can't really give financial guarantees of that type. So I was discussing with him if he filed for bankruptcy for the nine-month period of the bankruptcy, he could not sponsor his family. But you know, after that, he should be fine again. Or if he wanted to you know, just remove any uncertainty whatsoever, if he were to do a consumer proposal, there's not the same impact. So, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so not the same... Um stipulation as a bankruptcy has. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Excellent. Yeah, I think, you know, one final thing, thing, Elaine, is just on the idea of what you do get out of bankruptcy is you get a lot of questions answered that, you know, really, I don't know where you'd get the answers otherwise, because other than a licensed insolvency trustee, there are very few people that have to put all this together in a digestible way. And that happens in their counseling sessions. So anybody that files for bankruptcy or does a consumer proposal, they've got to come for two financial counseling sessions private sessions, not a group session. They're one-on-one in our offices. We spend the time, we talk about credit rebuilding, about budgeting, about life after the bankruptcy. We often get told that along with having to keep a budget, that's the most valuable part of the whole process. That's really good to remember, Um, especially the one-on-one thing, because then you're not dealing with, you know, the embarrassment and all that stuff. Oh yeah, it's private. If any of this information is resonating with you and you want to investigate and take it further and go see somebody, go see Blair Manton at Sands & Associates. Easy to do. You can get that financial fresh start. Call their number. It's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030, and get the free consultation or to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. On the line with us is Bethany Camp. She's a qualified insolvency counselor with Sands & Associates. She's got over five years of experience working in the personal debt help industry. She uh, provides counseling to clients in all the off- in the Abbotsford and Langley offices uh, for the one-on-one financial counseling sessions, which is what Sands & Associates offers. Bethany feels it's important to provide help without judgment and says, quote, through financial counseling, clients begin to feel empowered with knowledge of money management and most importantly, Hopeful. And Bethany, I can tell you that Blair and I talk about that hope all the time on this show because it feels so hopeless sometimes when somebody's walking in the door. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk about the counseling sessions. Yeah. So Bethany, thanks for joining us today. Um, Why don't you start off just telling us why do we have counseling sessions? You know, are, are these a mandatory part of bankruptcies and proposals? Yes, so they are mandatory. Um, they're required by the superintendent to attend two counseling sessions in a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal process. And the ad- objective of these counseling sessions is to help with overall financial rehabilitation. 
It's hopefully giving people the skills they need to ideally make a bankruptcy or a proposal a one-time occurrence in their lives. Okay, so you use the word, you know, financial rehab, so to, so to speak. So it's, you know, giving them skills and, um, and techniques and tools to, to try to make sure, you know, again, it's one time they, they come through the door. Uh, what's the structure of, of the session? You know, I often have my clients be really concerned, you know, is this going to be a group situation where, um, you know, I'll tell my story and everyone else will tell their story and we'll, com- you know, compare stories or is, is it different than that? Right. Um, so these are one-on-one private sessions. Um, it's not a group setting. We do find it is beneficial to bring someone um, just that shares your finances with you just so you can be on the same page. Um, often like, like a husband or wife kind of, you think? Exactly, yes. Yep, common law, anything that, like that. Now, Bethany, um, what kind of, I mean, this has got to be a bit tough for people to walk in the door and have to sit down. How does it go for these folks? Well, it's a non-judgmental environment here. Um, we let everyone kind of talk, and I hope they go out of the sessions feeling very hopeful about their future and, like I say, their financial goals coming true. Now, I bet I bet they do feel a lot more hopeful when they walk out the door. Yes. And, and Bethany, what, what topics do you cover in the, the first counseling sessions? So in the first counseling session, it is um, the subject matter is specified in the law for each of the counseling sessions. So the first counseling session focuses on um, how to rebuild your credit, when to get back into credit, what cards are available. Um, so there's prepaid, secured, and unsecured. So we go over those in a little bit of detail so people understand. Um, we also go over spending plans, like needs versus wants. And then at the end, I really like to go over people's financial goals and dreams because I feel like people tend to forget about their dreams because when you're in financial hardship, they just don't seem in reach. So I really like to come back to those goals. Yeah, and what you said there, Bethany, kind of kind of hit me when you were talking about the needs versus wants. You know, I've had some people say, right. you know, that's really everything. You know, it's it's always figuring out, you know, what can I afford to do, what to, what I love to do. You know, how do those discussions right. usually go when you're talking about needs versus wants with clients? Well, we kind of write them down and we kind of go over some questions and we kind of go back to the cash. Um, if you don't have the cash, you don't usually buy it. Um, but mm, okay, yep, we kind of go over some questions of what they might think is a need or is a want. And are there some surprises? You know, someone really thought this is a need, and as you you start to drive down, you figure out, well, actually, it was more of a want than a need, and that's a bit of an insight, right? Yep, and also when they kind of realize, they say, hey, you know what? We might actually not need it right now. We can wait, even for Christmas or Mother's Day or something. So it makes it a little bit more special as well. Okay. And then you talked about, you know, financial goals and, and dreams. And, you know, Bethany, you and I do different things at different points with, with clients. So, you know, when people come in to me, their, their big goal and their dream is just to, you know, make the pain stop, you know, to stop the collection calls, right. you know, to give them a sense that, you know, they're not a horrible person. They can actually move forward in, in their life. And, you know, sometimes they have some, you know, dim idea that eventually they'd love to be able to buy, you know, a house or a condo or something. I'm curious, yeah. you know, how are the types of goals that, that you sit down and develop with clients? You know, how do they align or not align with those types of things that people usually say when they start the process? Yep. So some are, you know, they want to get into a down payment again. They want their home. Um, some are, they want to have Christmas paid off. So it's not all put on credit cards. So that's a goal. They, they like having Christmas and they want to be able to have the Christmas presents for the grandchildren and, you know, their spouses and all of that. You know, it, it really ranges 
on on everyone, but there's lots of different goals. Some of trips because they haven't taken a trip in six or seven years. Um, so it really everyone's different. <laughs> Bethany, is there sort of um, a, not a set list, but some general questions that uh, the people come in to your counseling session with and and really want to focus on and get answered? Yeah, so there there are a few that definitely um, stand out to me. So uh, some of the common questions is, does it take seven years for them to rebuild their credit? Mm, um, does it? And nope. <laughs> um, so it is six years after discharge is how long it stays on your Equifax and TransUnion report. Um, however, you can start rebuilding from the get-go. Right when you sign the papers, you can start rebuilding your credit. And those are the things we go over in the counseling session. So you don't have to wait, you know, a few years, you know, as you said, you can really start to take positive steps right away. Right. And that's very encouraging for people to hear because um, they're under the assumption that, you know, they can't rebuild if it's still on their Equifax and TransUnion report. Yeah, I really love that part um, of the thinking around uh, consumer proposal for folks that they're mm-hmm. automatically rebuilding their credit as soon as as soon as they start because there's a documentation that they've taken action and they're taking very significant important steps to uh, fix this debt issue and I just love I just love that I mean that to me is part of the hope that you guys bring for folks and then another question that they ask is do their employers or their friends find out about the process um, and Nope. Uh, it is a confidential process. Mm-hmm. The only time a friend or employer would find out is if their wages are being garnished, um, so their employer would know. Um, and if their friend owed them money and they had them on the creditor list, um, then they would be notified. But this is confidential, so not everyone knows about it. Oh, that's great info, Bethany. And, you know, we're, we're down to about the last minute and a half here or so. I'm, I'm curious, uh, you've been doing counseling for a number of years here, and it's always interesting to me, what do people find really surprising? So I wonder for a first counseling session, you know, what do you find that your clients are, are really surprised by that you, when you relay it to them? Yeah. Um, I think they are very surprised at how quickly they can get back into credit and start rebuilding, um, you know, their credit. Um, I find they're surprised at how common of a process this is. The insolvency, insolvency statistics in Canada for 2017 were 122,198 people in Canada wow. to do a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal. So then they feel like they're not alone. Um, and then the last one is, I think they're very surprised that their goals are achievable. We break it down into how much they have to save, how long they have to save the money, and we break it in down into how much they have to save each day. And I feel like people are very surprised and very hopeful when they come out of the sessions. Bethany, I think you must do some wonderful work with these folks because uh, you just ha- you're just you so empathetic and you understand the process and you sort of understand uh, who they are when they're walking in the door and, and have experienced so many positive things. Um, Bethany is just one of the several uh, staff uh, at uh, Sands & Associates. Remember uh, the website, nice and easy to remember, it's sands-trustee.com. You can give them a call. It's a 1-800 number. If you're interested, if any of this information is resonating with you and you'd like some more, their number is 1-800-661-3030 for that first free consultation, as well as to find an office near you. Thanks, Bethany. Thank you very much for having me. 
Have a great day. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. And hey, as a reminder, for any information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. In studio with us right now is Mark Fidget. He's a Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker, has over 20 years of experience. He's a member of the Verico Mortgage Network and pretty much the driver behind this fabulous website. Here's the address, www.advancedequity.ca. Now, Mark's been on the show before on Dollars and Cents. He's also a frequent speaker, uh, talks a lot about mortgage debt and personal finance. Welcome, Mark, to the show. Elaine, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Blair. My Happy pleasure. to be here. Great. So I know uh, I'll just start off. We're, we're talking about new mortgage rules. That's the point of this segment. Um, so there are new mortgage rules, and they're actually really new. So can we go through them, Mark, and, and the changes? Uh, when did they come into effect, and, and what are they? So absolutely, uh, Elaine. So they came into effect January 1st, and we, when we're saying new mortgage rules, it's really an expansion of an existing rule that came in last year, and it's called a stress test. So uh, it basically now requires, as of January 1st, for everyone to qualify on the benchmark Bank of Canada rate, which is this floating rate. Currently, it's at 5.14. Previous to January 1st, it really only was applicable to the low down payment crowd. So that's anybody putting less than 20% down. So now the banks have to evaluate based on the benchmark uh, rate, so and take that payment, and uh, you've got to prove that you can uh, handle the 2% increase in rates. And the benchmark rate is new, normally quite a bit higher, right? C- correct. It's likely sitting about 2% higher. I'm not sure how they come up with that rate, mm-hmm. but it's about 2% higher than your, your, your fixed five-year rate. Hmm. So it would seem to me that the government's a little bit worried. People are overextending themselves and they're just going to make it more and more difficult to qualify for a mortgage. Everything being being equal, you have a tougher time this year than you would 12 months ago. Correct. I mean, 12 months ago, what we were seeing is we were seeing a lot of parents gifting funds to their buyers, their, their kids, because they could bypass that 20%. And really what it meant was if you had 20% down or more, there was a lot more flexibility in the banks qualifying you. Now it's black and white. It, whatever, whatever that rate is, that Bank of Canada benchmark rate, you have a payment that goes with it. If you don't qualify for that, you don't qualify for that mortgage, regardless of how much you're putting down. And regardless of history with the bank, regardless of your you know, credit worthiness, this is a hard and fast test. It's a hard and fast test. And actually, it's, it's not a bad thing. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a conversation that I've had with my clients for many years. Like, what's going to happen if rates go up? Can you afford it? Um, but obviously it's something that's come in, it's new and people aren't used to it. So what have you seen in your client base, Mark, since, since these rules have, have taken effect? So I'm seeing a lot more difficulty in qualifying. So for example, I had a client, uh, who, who bought a pre-built and they qualified at the time that we did the financing basically for, you know, they weren't, a, they were approved for the financing, but obviously this is two years in the future. So we're looking right. at based on what we know now. So this is like you see these big advertisements, new tower being built, no, 
barely even hole in the ground, but you sign on at that point, right? You sign on at that point and you're basically looking at rates at that time and saying, do I qualify? So obviously we don't have a crystal ball, but we're looking at rates today and saying, yeah, based on your, your income, here's what you qualify for. And then what's happened now is as of January 1st, all of a sudden, instead of qualifying on the rate they're getting, they now have to qualify on a rate that's 2% higher, which is your mm. benchmark, uh, Bank of Canada benchmark rate. So I've got a girl who bought this pre-build, it's getting close to completion, and now she doesn't qualify. I mean, wow. for, fortunate <laughs> for her, she's getting married, she's got a husband, she's got another income, but imagine the people that have bought pre-builds, been told they qualify, and all of a sudden this new rule comes in and right across the board it changes the whole dynamics. Well, and emotionally, it's got to be pretty difficult. I mean, how demoralizing is that when you've been, you know, anticipating this unit to become yours and all of a sudden the rules have changed significantly because 2%, that's a big change. Well, that's a huge change. And I mean, in this example, she was fortunate to have another income, but imagine you're by yourself and all of a sudden you're told you've put 20% down on a deposit for a pre-build and all of a sudden now you don't qualify. What are you doing? I mean, it's pretty scary times. Yeah, absolutely. It would, yeah, that would be awful. And I have a feeling that this young woman you're talking about uh, isn't alone, right? I mean, it's happening to everybody. uh, And some people are going to be able to sort of absorb that. And others, what what do they do at that point, Mark? Just walk away? Well, I mean, you've got to, you've got to weigh your options, right? Mm, You've got a deposit probably, right? Yeah, you've got a deposit. Mm. uh, uh, You've got a property that's likely increased in value. So you're not only walking away from your deposit, you're walking oh. away from, you know, an increased equity position. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, and, and this is where the change came in because prior to January, anybody who put less than 20% down, they were stress tested b- back last year. But then right. all of a sudden, if you had more than 20%, you didn't run into this problem, but now it's everybody it doesn't matter. So you don't have a choice where you can go back and say, okay, well, I can get a little bit more money down I can put at least 20% down. Now I don't have to worry about the stress test. Yeah, you do. And Mark, even if you're putting, you know, 40% down, something like that, some, some significant number, you're, you're still, these rules still apply. Is that correct? Absolutely. Wow. And it's, it's hmm. the flexibility that's lost. Yeah. Hmm. When you were putting the large down payments previous to January 1st, the banks had more flexibility. So if your income was a, you know, fixed amount, but you need a little bit more, you know, they could make it work. Now it's, it is what it is. It's black and white. Hmm. Well, I have to, so can we talk about affordability then? Is that a good, is this a good place to actually talk about that? Because that just seems to have gone out the window, right? I mean, there's some segment of the population that it's, it's not an issue and it'll never be an issue for them, but feels like for everybody else. Well, I think we can agree if we're talking about single family homes in the lower mainland, that's virtually impossible for most. Um, and that's why the condo price market, there's, there's a disconnect right now. The, the single family homes are slowing, but there's still huge price range with them. But the condo market is popping. And really that's what we would consider the only affordable product on the market. But here's where the big disconnect is, Elaine. The medium sale price of a one bedroom, one bedroom condo in Greater Vancouver just hit 540000 in March. Wow. And when you take into consideration the average household income in Vancouver is 79000 based on this new stress test rule and CMHC's guidelines, you know, your GDS, TDS, the math doesn't work. Um, it technically means that the average family can't afford even a one-bedroom home in, in Vancouver. 
Wow. So earning almost $80,000 a year, which most people would think solidly middle class, upper middle class type of income, that doesn't get you to first base. It doesn't get you a one bedroom condo from an affordability point of view in Vancouver. That's what you're saying, Mark. Correct. Unless you've got a huge down payment. Hmm. And, and, you know, I don't know if you read it, but RBC affordability index just came out and it states that Vancouver has the worst affordability levels ever recorded anywhere in Canada. I mean, that's huge. Wow. So there must be something more than doom and gloom here, right? So obviously it, it's... Is it, there, Mark? Yeah, is there please tell us. more than doom and gloom? <laughs> you know, of course. I mean, we're talking about the, you know, the lower mainland Vancouver area. Obviously it's, it's, it's a high priced area. Um, the further you go out, it's mm. the better, you know, the lower the price is. So of course there's options there. Um, there is a big transfer of wealth right now. So I mean... There are lots of people that are coming up, younger generation that are coming up with big down payments because the parents are selling their, you know, their Carisdale five, six million dollar home, hmm. downsizing, giving their kids some money. So it's happening and it's moving. But if we're talking about just a person who's got an average income with uh, not a ton of savings, it's tough. You're buying outside the lower mainland. Way outside the lower mainland. Yeah, I didn't want to say that, Elaine. But, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. but right, because I mean, concentric circles. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the, uh, there was a time when going to Burnaby, uh, Surrey, Coquitlam, that's where that we saw that huge bulge, Maple Ridge, yep. new home construction was, cr- was going crazy. And now, and now you go there and you're still looking at, I don't know what a condo goes for, but I know a single family dwelling is, is way up there. If not, if not at a million, it's between eight and that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and demand has been driven up there. I mean, people are being pushed out of the downtown core. So of course, demand in those areas is going up. So the price now, even for those, that product is higher than it was, you know, three, five years ago. Okay. So there is nothing but doom and gloom then, Mark, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, I know you're not saying that, but it is. I mean, it's a, it's a super challenging time for folks. Super challenging. Yeah. And really there's only two ways to be able to buy higher. And one is we talked about having a larger down payment and the other way is to bump up your income. And really most of the time your income is what it is. So what we're seeing is uh, couples are buying together where they're grouping their income, maybe buying a, a, a dupe up and down duplex where mm-hmm. they're buying it together. So there's a little bit of creativity there. Um, of course, if you're on the fence and you're buying something like a single family home, maybe it's not in Vancouver, it's further out those places you spoke about. There's always that option of a legal suite where you right. know it might help boost you and get you over the fence there. Mm-hmm. So there's still there's still hope. Make sure you're working with a great mortgage broker, knowledgeable one, and uh, knows the rules. And yeah, I mean there's there's opportunity still. And steer you in the right direction. I would think that um, expertise, knowledge, uh, those kinds of things are really. I mean they're always important. But I would think in this particular situation, because uh, a bad decision you could just sink you really easily. For sure. And a big question that I just wanted to touch on, uh, a lot of people are concerned about renewals right now with this uh, right. with this stress test rule. And uh, it's safe to say that right now, the stress test rule doesn't apply to someone renewing their mortgage. Uh, so that's what's happening right now. So so don't worry about that when you're coming up for renewal. Uh, one of the things we, you know, that we have to consider is I think the competition's going to be eliminated because previously, if you were going to get a renewal, yep. you could shop around. You call up your mortgage broker, see what the best rate is. And if there's a better rate somewhere else, you move. Now, if you don't qualify in this stress test rule, 
you aren't moving and your bank knows you can't move. So what's that going to do to competition and to the type of rates they're going to offer you on renewal? Seems like somebody else needs to be involved here, right? For sure. I mean, typically, you know, you you do what you do and you know what you know. So, uh, you know, you're going to a doctor because a doctor knows. I mean, I'd get a knowledgeable mortgage broker, even if it's a bankrupt, someone who really knows what they're doing and uh, steer you in the right direction. And for those who don't know, Mark, does it cost anything to work with a mortgage broker? No, it's absolutely free unless you're getting into that B type of lending. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton uh, from Sands and Associates. Get that financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation. Thank you, Mark Fidget. Thank you for having me in. It was great. We'll be back with more right after this. Yes. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I love these segments. These are case studies that that Blair and I get to talk about. And uh, this is where I think it's so important for folks if they're listening, because this is the kind of information that might really resonate with them. And they go, oh, that's just like me, or that's just like my sister, mm-hmm. or whatever. So let's start. before. Uh, actually, before we get into the examples, mm-hmm. can we talk a little mm-hmm. bit about what you do at Sands & Associates and, and, and what a licensed insolvency trustee is? Sure. So the best part of my job, Elaine, is, is as we're going to talk to on these case studies, I meet with people and I understand their financial situation and I help them fix it. I help them move forward. If they've got too much debt, they've got no idea how they're going to pay something, how they're going to get back on track. As a licensed insolvency trustee, I've got the power of federal law behind me that I can stop all interest on debt and I can reduce it down to what people can afford. And that's called a consumer proposal. And that works. You know, probably two thirds of people that come to see us, they opt for consumer proposals and they don't go into bank. Bankruptcy. The other thing I can help with is I can help with a personal bankruptcy. So if there's the wolves at the door, people are calling you like crazy, starting to seize your wages, and you can't even afford to pay back a third of the debt, it's so bad that a bankruptcy can give you the relief you need to restructure yourself and move forward. So when I got into this job, I, I didn't know if I'd like it so much because it sounds like you know, you're going to hear bad news every day, but I find it so uplifting. Just about everybody I meet with, they've had a tough time, they're honest people, and we're able to help them move forward with a better path. And the cool thing about it, Sands and Associates, they give you an opportunity to have one, a free consultation right off the bat, yep. and that way you can go and see Blair and say, okay, this, 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 and this is my situation, and I'm concerned about this or worried about that or what about this and uh, you'll sit down with these folks and help them. Yeah, exactly. And even if it's a situation that we can't help with, you know, if the solution is not a bankruptcy or not a proposal, we'll still spend a lot of time. We'll give you as much information as we can. If it's just general questions about credit and debt, we're usually the best place you can come because we're unbiased. We're just officers of the court. We just know all the rules, but we don't have a horse in the game, so to speak, requiring you to pay back as much of your debt as possible or reduce it as much as possible. We just want fairness for everybody. Excellent. Okay, so let's talk about one of these uh, unfortunate uh life, real life situations mm-hmm. uh, when uh, in this, and in this case, a bankruptcy actually allowed for that financial fresh start. So yeah. not the consumer proposal, mm-hmm. but a bankruptcy. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So this was a 
gentleman that came to see us in our Vancouver office. Um, and the way he described it is he was running a restaurant, which is always a dangerous thing. Oof. And I would agree with so that. So appreciated <laughs> if it's good, but man, it's a tough business. Yeah. And the margins are just so tight on a yeah. restaurant, you know, like a retail store. And you've seen so many retailers go bankrupt this year with tight margins. You have to do everything right to maybe be a couple percent positive. As soon as one thing goes wrong, you know, you can lose a lot of money very quickly. Yeah. Increased rent or mm-hmm. lease or whatever. Yeah. Or even just customer tastes change, you know, who knows? Um, but for this gentleman, so he was married, uh, he was 72 years old and his debts were about $125,000. So, you know, very significant. Um, and $25,000 of that was amounts owing for a business GST account. So we had to shut down the restaurant. Um, he was on the hook as a director of the corporation for government amounts that weren't paid. And GST was a big portion of that. Um, the thing that drove him out of business, exactly as you alluded to, Elaine, was a rent increase. So I forget the exact percentage because I have people tell me this, you know, quite often it's happening across the city here. Absolutely. But, you know, sometimes it's a doubling of rent or a 30 or 50 percent increase and you just can't absorb that. He had been in business for a lot of years, but, you know, he basically said it sounded like the landlord just wanted to do something else with the space and was making it unaffordable for us. Often that's a situation, isn't it? It's yeah. not so much they want you out, but they want to do something different with that ever valuable land. Yeah. And now when I sat down with him in the consultation, I always ask, you know, well, what have you tried so far? And, you know, just seeing, you know, what, what might work or what might not. And unfortunately in this situation, you know, he's again, honest as the day is long, a very good businessman, but he didn't quite understand that some of his assets were protected. So before he came to see me, he had cashed in, I think it was about $20,000 of his RRSP money. Mm. So he's, you know, again, already 72 years old, should be retired in there and had some good retirement savings. But as he was trying, you know, not to have to come and see a trustee, he cashed in some RRSPs, which essentially did him no good. And uh, explain explain yeah. that piece. Why isn't that a good idea? Well, because RRSPs are federally protected. So if he had to file a bankruptcy, which is what he did, he would keep those RRSPs 100% at the end of it. So if he had $100,000 going in and he took nothing out, he'd have $100,000 going out. But if prior to the bankruptcy, again, trying to do the right thing, if he cashed in those RRSPs and used the money to pay debts, there's no way he's ever going to get that money back. It's gone. It's almost counterintuitive for the really thoughtful, caring, trying to do the right thing person, isn't it? Oh, it it is. And the challenge here is that you've got some discretion with an RRSP. When it's a company pension plan, you can't do anything. The company got it locked in there and you can't touch it until it's time. With an RRSP, the ability that you have to touch it can sometimes be too tempting. Um, But if you understand the broader context, here, it's almost never a good idea to cash in your RRSPs. Got it. So what was the uh, solution for this guy? Yes, we looked at the situation. We saw there's $125,000 of debt, including a lot to the government. After the restaurant shut down, he was essentially just getting government pensions and minimal part-time income. You know, his his income was under $2,000 a month, so he's below the low-income guideline for, for a family of two there. Um, so we spent a lot of time discussing at options. Again, he didn't want to go into bankruptcy, but it was really the right option at the end of the day. Um, based on his income, based on essentially a lack of assets and everything else that had went forward, um, he was done bankruptcy after nine months. So not the six or seven years. He said to me, you know, I spent more time dithering about the decision to come and see you guys mm-hmm. than I actually spent in bankruptcy. And I said, yeah, that's a common thing. Right. You know, a lot of people Absolutely. spend about two years worrying about it before yeah. they, they come in and, and take the first step. He was in bankruptcy for nine months. He paid $200 a month for those nine months, which is the minimum amount set by government. Uh, We helped him deal with all the government debt, all the other unsecured debts, and we helped him move forward. 
Excellent. Mm-hmm. How about uh, another example of a, a real-life situation, uh, this time involving a family, because, uh, you know, it's not just individuals or single people who get into pickles like this, yeah. especially in this day and age. It's like whole families get affected. Yeah, exactly, Elaine. And this, this is a great example because this is someone who is a recent immigrant to Canada, and they came to Canada because they had a great job. Their employer moved them here. Um, but unfortunately, after a few years of arriving, that job disappeared. Um, and the, the father of the family, he had a period of a number of months of unemployment uh, where the family expenses were still continuing to tick up and he used credit to fill the gap. You know, as, as you would, if you don't have money in the bank for groceries, well, you're going to put the groceries on the credit card and well, try to deal month. with it, right? It's just for this month. Exactly. And then next month, things will be different, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, when he came to see us, um, so he they were both in their mid-30s. Um, he had two children and an elderly family member as well. So supporting a bunch of people on the impact. Um, And he had already reestablished a job at that point. So they were bringing home a very good wage. So for the two income earners and the three dependents, it was about $8,000 a month, including child tax benefit and employment. So still very good. Um, But they had about $86,000 of unsecured consumer debt. So even at that income level, he was struggling to make minimum payments. And he knew it was going to be, you know, 50 years plus if he just makes the minimum payments to actually get out of that debt. Right. And do we, and are we talking credit card debt of that 86000 That was it, yeah. So it wasn't wow. tax debt. He was T4 the whole time. It was essentially unsecured credit card debt. And there's and there's another group of, of folks on the planet who aren't very flexible in what they charge you on a monthly basis. That's true, yeah. yeah. No, there's a certain amount, a minimum, and that interest gets tacked on no matter what. Yeah, so, they yeah, tell you we... what it is, and, and then they charge it to you. Yep. All righty. So his solution, so he had $86,000 of debt, ridiculous amounts of minimum payments. Uh, We were able to split the debt between him and his spouse, and we helped each of them with consumer proposals. We were able to bring his payments down. Again, it was over two, $3,000 a month for all their debts, the minimum payments. His payments we brought down to $415 a month. So no interest. He's paying back what he can afford at $415. And we brought his wife's payments down to $325 per month. So combined, they were just over $700 you know, 740 or so, which was about a third of what they were paying. And this has an end date. A proposal is done in five years unless they can pay it off sooner, where what they were doing before, they'd make these payments until until they couldn't make the payments anymore. Now, is this unusual that both the uh, both uh, people of the couple would uh, get a consumer proposal? Is that is or is that a unique situation? It's increasingly common because quite often banks are you know giving everybody supplementary cards or encouraging couples to apply for joint products. So we're seeing it more and more. Sometimes people do a joint proposal as once uh, at at once, or they do two separate proposals. Okay, is there an advantage or disadvantage to doing it either way? Because that's interesting. Not much of a difference, um, to be honest. You know, sometimes doing a joint proposal is better because then both spouses can do a proposal as opposed to one perhaps having to go into a bankruptcy. Okay. But each situation is a little bit different. So okay. yeah, you just want to sit down with your trustee and figure it out. So you'll, yeah, so I was just going to say, so you'll help me figure that out if I'm in that situation. Always. So that's, a, again, This is, these are two very real uh, life case studies that Blair and his team at Ma- Sands and Associates have looked after and, and helped and got these folks uh, into a a better place than they were before they walked in the door. If you'd like more information, check out the website sands-trustee.com. It's a terrific website. There's so much information, lots of frequently asked questions uh, that may cover some of your questions. Or the phone number, it's a 1-800 number 661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.